one thing that uh, struck me in terms of humanity's response to uh, the COVID pandemic is the importance of uh, is that the importance of a new ideas had been uh, pretty much internalized throughout our species. We don't pray to gods or sacrifice to them in order to rescue us uh, from uh, from COVID. Uh, in, in, instead, we hope and pray that scientists will come up with uh, new ideas. And since we are talking about ideas, I thought, who better but uh, Professor Joel Mokir um, to talk about the importance of ideas in terms of uh, human progress in general and, uh, and uh, COVID in particular. So thank you very much for doing this with us, uh, Professor Mokir. My pleasure. Um, so, in your research, you differentiate between the Smithian and Schumpeterian growth. Can you briefly mention the difference between the two and why, is, why are new ideas so important to Schumpeterian growth in particular? Well, Smithian growth uh, is the kind of growth that Adam Smith was talking about, which is why it's called Smithian growth. And it's basically based on uh, what economists would think of as gains from trade and better allocation. So, you know, one of the best known demonstrations in any introduction to economics class is that if that region A starts trading with region B, where before they weren't trading, then they're both better off. And so you get something that looks like economic growth, right? So better institutions, peace, better transportation, things like that will create trade where there wasn't any before. And so everybody is better off. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, and then they, they can specialize comparative advantage. I mean, this whole sort of story uh, that we tell, it's really independent of technological change. Superterian growth is about technological change and therefore it is about new ideas. Now, new ideas can be big, they can be small, they can be written down or they can be just being, you know, implicit and tacit in people's heads. I mean, there's various forms of it, but it's the basic idea is that we get better at making things, uh, making the same things cheaper and better, or maybe making new things that we weren't making before at all. And um, those are hugely different kind of processes because, uh, as I see it at least, Smithian growth can get, can take you a long way toward economic progress and it can make you richer. And it did in many instances, historically speaking, trade and things related with trade uh, did lead to wealth, say, in, you know, in, in northern Italy in the, during the Renaissance or the Netherlands during the Golden Age. But eventually it tends to peter out because you can, you know, at some point you exhaust all the advantages of trade and then you may be richer, but you're not going to keep growing anymore. I mean, in, 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 in the theoretical limit of this, of course, is in all transactions and all transportation costs have gone down to zero, which of course never happens, but that's a sort of theoretical limit. And so that, 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 at that point growth, Smithian growth ends. <coughs> A more realistic scenario, perhaps, is what's happened in within the EU in the last, say, decades, right? So the EU reduced transportation and transactions costs between different member countries. And, you know, it led to a great deal of prosperity. But by now, those are probably largely exhausted. I mean, it, it's unlikely that growth 
on the basis of specialization within the EU is going to give you the kind of oops that we've been getting since the beginning of the EU in 1957. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Now, with Schumpeterian growth, growth but based on new ideas, that kind of limit, as far as anybody knows, doesn't exist. We don't know if there is a limit to the new ideas that people can come up with. I mean, there's debates about this. My, my, my learned colleague, Robert Gordon, for instance, thinks that at some point we're going to reach a stage at which everything that can be invented has been invented. Uh, I mean, people have said this before. It's never happened. But, you know, you can't be absolutely sure that it will never happen, of course. So, um, uh, but I don't see it, uh, quite frankly, and certainly not in, in, in our lifetime. I think uh, science is really embarking on new and exciting frontiers right now that promise a great deal uh, of progress in the future and i don't quite i don't quite think that we should be pessimistic about it. it's the, the possibility of the economy to fundamentally keep growing based on new ideas whether we measure that growth correctly or not is a different matter and so there's all kinds of interesting debates about whether gdp or some other measure is the right is the right metric but basically everybody understands and expects that new ideas are going to give us more progress and more prosperity mm. so if i understand you correctly it goes something like this people create ideas ideas create inventions and innovations Inventions and innovations lead to Schumpeterian growth. Would that be a correct? Exactly. Okay. I would think. I, I I would think that's that is basically the right way. So you know, there are things in between because you know ideas aren't enough, right? I mean, just ideas will not get you there. What you need is an environment in which these ideas can be translated into action. You know, so I was about. Uh, so I was about to ask that. So obviously. The, the counter argument could be made that people always had new ideas and yet it is only in the last um, uh, 200, 300 years during the Schumpeterian growth that these ideas have been translated into this very fast growth rate. So why, why did that happen? Why is Schumpeterian era so different from previous ones? People had always new ideas, but these ideas weren't usually focused on production okay so they they were thinking about philosophy they were thinking about god they were thinking about you know uh, all kinds of things that interested them but the kind of sort of day-to-day -day work of the you know the farmer in the fields and the you know blacksmith in his workshop and the sailor on the, on, on the seas weren't of interest to them and so you look at greek and roman civilization and compared to their intellectual ability, you know, their technological achievements were actually quite, uh, quite modest. Moreover, I would think, uh, if you look at my own forebears, you know, you look at the at Jewish civilization, you know, they were brilliant people. They could, you know, they had the fantastic ideas. The Bible is full of ideas. But in terms of, you know, technological progress, uh, you know, there, there wasn't all that much there. Uh, so it really depends a little bit on the intellectual environment where people who are having ideas, what kind of ideas they are coming up with. And I think the great breakthrough that occurs in the world uh, is happening in the sort of 
16th and 17th century, when it dawns upon Europeans, and this is the, the beginning of what I call the Industrial Enlightenment, and when it dawns upon Europeans that, you know, it's worth thinking about nature, about physics, about chemistry, about biology, about you know, astronomy, so that we can harness these new ideas to our productive needs. And that's really a breakthrough. The other point I would make, to answer your point, people always say that yes, and of course, when people start thinking about how to make production better and come up with innovations, uh, that's not enough. The example I always give to my students is the hundreds and hundreds of sketches that Leonardo da Vinci made of various wonderful machines. And Leonardo da Vinci is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole set of writers in Europe and in China, for that matter, who describe have new ideas about agriculture, about mines, about mills, about various construction devices. I mean, you name it. And nobody can build these damn things because the workmanship and the materials isn't there. You need qualified artisans who can then take these blueprints, these models, and, and make them work and scale them up and make them actually part of the economy. That's hard to do. You know, <laughs> that kind of, 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 of workmanship, you know, most countries don't have it. And the great success of Europe is that in the 18th and 19th century, first Britain, then everybody else, they build up, you know, a, a, a labor force who can take these new ideas and actually turn them into reality. And so, yes, people always had ideas, but these ideas don't automatically translate into economic growth. That is a modern invention. What... Uh role did culture play in enabling new ideas to be turned into reality? Uh, I assume that people were not always open to new ideas, at least that is my understanding. No. So here is one of the sort of great arguments I've been making now for decades and which I'm, the more I think about it, the more I believe that I've got it right. Uh, I don't know how big it is, how important it is, but this is a cultural trait that I really feel strongly about. And that's the following. How much ancestor worship is there in uh, the intellectual sphere in where people actually do create new ideas? And the odd thing is that when you start looking at intellectual histories in any kind of society, you are struck by how much respect uh, many thinkers have about the wisdom of their ancestors and how little they are willing to deviate from what they thought their ancestors knew. So what is, at some point, there's somebody who creates a body of knowledge, you know, it is maybe the Bible or it may be Confucius or it may be Aristotle, but somebody creates a body of knowledge that's then embodied in, a, in, in usually in a book. And that is then considered to be sacrosanct. And you're not supposed to come up with new ideas because that would be heresy. Every society, you know, fights heresy as much as it can. And so what happens is that body of knowledge tends to be crystallized. Aristotle was, you know, basically a gospel for all matters scientific for hundreds of years. Uh, 
in China, it was Neo-Confucianism. In, in, in Jewish civilization, it was the Talmud and, and the things that came before it. And so the wisdom of earlier generations is often considered to be sacrosanct. That's stifling. I mean, Islamic civilization may be the best example of that. You know, how they, you know, at some point in the 12th century, people like Al-Ghazali basically said that anything that deviates from the Quran and the Hadith uh, would be heresy. And so that seems to be the normal state of the way people think. And what you need is a world in which people are willing to look back at the knowledge of their forefathers or, you know, and basically say, you know what, these guys were smart, we're smarter. And that's what you see happening in Europe in the late 15th, 16th and 17th century. One thing after another gets overthrown, whether it is, you know, in medicine, it is Galenus, and in physics, it's Aristotle, and in geography and in astronomy, it's Ptolemy, and on and on it goes. I mean, so this is what I document at some length, but it isn't just science. You know, this age, you know, invents biblical criticism. People look at the holiest of holy books, the Bible, and they go, Oh man, you know, this was written by people. Look, chapter 17 contradicts chapter 23. Must be written by different people. I mean, you people start thinking logically about this and they become critical and they say, look, some of this stuff is wrong. You know, and, and that I think is an incredible cultural breakthrough that really only happens once in the history of, of, of humans, as far as I can see. It doesn't happen in China. In the end, Neo-Confucianism becomes, you know, like, like, like a harness in which Chinese uh, culture is, is imprisoned. In Islamic civilizations, even worse. They won't even print books. Uh, we Jews are, you know, terribly conservative until, you know, the 19th century. The only Jew, Marianne, which I... I always tell my students, the only important Jewish thinker who got up and said, look, a lot of this stuff is, you know, needs to be criticized, was Spinoza. And Spinoza was, you know, ostracized by the Jewish community, you know, completely, was kicked out, and nobody could talk to him, nobody could, could communicate with him. You know, the Jews said, we don't want anything to do with this. And that is, you know, that I think is, is, is a cultural prerequisite to any kind of progress, because if you get too enamored by the wisdom of your forefathers, you're not going to make any progress. And somehow we are hardwired to do so. And the Europeans broke out of it, which is, I find this astonishing. Uh, but that's what created economic modernity, Marianne. Do you have a pet theory why you think that in Europe at that particular time, this kind of openness um, was given a latitude. Um, one of the things that, one of the explanations that I like in particular was advanced by um, Stephen Davies from the Institute of Economic Affairs, who wrote a book basically claiming that because Europe didn't have a hegemon and all of these European countries were fighting each other, they had a choice. The governments of those countries had a choice. Either we are going to open our intellectual sphere so that, um, so that more growth and more ideas are generated and we survive, or we are going to clamp down on dissent and new ideas and we are going to go down under 
and somebody's going to take us over. Are you attracted to that explanation? I, I no, no, I'm attracted to that. I think that is clearly large part of the explanation. It certainly explains, for instance, why it happened in Europe and not in China, because China is a single empire uh, which can control what people are thinking. What you see in Europe is that any kind of, uh, in, you know, clamping down on intellectuals who are thinking outside the box, who might be heretics, uh, is doomed to failure because you're looking at a massive coordination failure, right? So uh, if, if, if you are, if you decide that so-and-so is a heretic in, in your country, uh, all you're gonna all that's gonna happen is he's gonna take his suitcases and go somewhere else. And in fact, a lot of people did. And, you know, even England, which is a, you know, is the tolerant country. I mean, never forget that you know, Thomas Hobbes wrote Leviathan in exile in Paris. And John Locke wrote the essays on toleration in Amsterdam. I mean, these people sometimes had to flee their country. Uh, even in the Netherlands, this was true. There were times when intellectuals fled. Uh, but, you know, at some point, this becomes common knowledge. So everybody knows that everybody knows that if you clamp down on intellectuals, they're just going to go away. And, and so there's no point. <laughs> and eventually, in the, in the late 17th, 18th century, this all becomes window dressing. You know, there still is a censorship, but the censors don't work. Nobody can really control the flows of ideas anymore. And nobody really actually tries really hard. I mean, you look at the French censorship of people like, like uh, uh, Diderot and, and Rousseau and so on. Yeah, basically, if they write a book that's too outrageous, they go to them and say, you yeah, know, that wasn't very nice. You know, we'll burn a few of your books and you go and go to Scotland for a few years so we don't have to look at you. But, you know, the idea that they would burn him like they burned Giordano Bruno in 1600, that, that doesn't happen anymore. And that's because they know that this is doomed to failure. Now, you know, some countries are run by, you know, uh, benighted and, 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 and reactionary rulers. And in those countries, you know, these countries fall behind. I mean, there's an argument that this happens to some extent to much of Europe south of the Alps, right? So Spain, Portugal, uh, parts of Italy, which were, uh, you know, governed by the Inquisition. And so the Inquisition said, we don't care, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to clamp down on heretics. So, you know, that's why, you know, the, the center of gravity of science moves north to England, to France, to Germany, to the Netherlands. I mean, I'm not totally sure I buy this lock, stock and barrel, but there is such a theory. But by and large, I think everybody knows that this isn't going to work. Uh, that said, I think the political fragmentation, which is, you know, a big theme in, 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 in global history, that that's not enough. Because there was fragmentation in the Middle Ages, even more so maybe than, you know, you got a feudal system, you have fragmentation in Africa, you have fragmentation in India, you need more than that. And so I would argue that the other reason why Europeans are slowly being disenchanted with with previous knowledge is that from 1500 on they are you know there really are a bunch of sort of i would say cognitive shocks that are administered to europeans which make them doubt the wisdom of uh, the ancients okay so the discovery of the new world of course is a major one you know none there's nothing clearly 
nothing in the writings of, of, of the ancient Greek philosophers predicted anything like that. But also the, you know, Aristotle predicted you couldn't cross the equator because you'd be burned alive. Well, Bartolomeo Diaz did this and he, you know, he came back. So obviously that didn't happen. But then all kind of other things are slowly sort of dawning upon people that the ancients were wrong. Um, for instance, one more example that I like. So Aristotle, you know, his cosmology basically is that there are these five planets that they could that you could see with the bare eye, and they moved around. All the other stars were fixed. Their number was fixed. None of them were added. Numbers subtracted. That's what they're there. And then in 1583, a, you know, a, a Danish uh, astronomer called Tycho Brahe observes a supernova. And all of a sudden, there's a star that wasn't there before. Now it's there. And he goes, hey, wait a minute. But Aristotle said you couldn't do that. So, you know, if, if he's wrong about that, what else is he wrong about? And so more, you know, you see all these guys, you know, when, you, know you look at Gilbert writing about magnetism and you look at, at um, people writing, say, a whole bunch of people, particularly uh, one of Galileo's students, Torricelli, basically showing that contrary to what Aristotle said, uh, you could create a vacuum uh, because, uh, you know, they, they build a vacuum pump. And Aristotle, of course, says, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. You can't have a vacuum. Well, here's a vacuum, man. So slowly but certainly, they realize, you know, they know more than Aristotle. And some of the things Aristotle said are just demonstrably wrong. And, um, and those are, you know, that, that in itself is an idea. You know, the notion... That is so, so what you get, what you get in Europe is, you know, the, the French call this le uh, querelle uh, entre les anciens et les modernes. So the war between the ancients and the modern. The ancients really say, oh my God, you know, the, the classics, they knew far more than we do. They're, they're smart, they wrote better poetry, they wrote better plays, they wrote better, you know, they were better in every regard. And the moderns say, no, 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 no. They were good, we're better. So And that's the frame of mind that I think is, is really critical. Okay, so openness, criticism, toleration of new ideas, very, yeah. very important. Yeah. Do you see any cultural trends or even institutional trends today in the world uh, that are most threatening to the generation of new ideas? If new ideas are important, do you see any dark clouds on the horizon? I do see dark clouds on the horizon because there's always, and in all societies, there are benighted people who are anti-science, anti-progress. Some of them come from the right, and they, you know, they are people that 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 you know deny the theory of evolution. I mean, which other country in the world has a, crea a creationist museum? You know, where people walk next to dinosaurs and other rubbish. Um, and so we have people on the right, and we have people on the left. Okay, they're also anti-progress, not because they don't think it can be achieved, but because it's bad. It's bad for us. It's bad for the planet. It's bad for, for animals. You know, it's bad. So you have people on both sides. But what is why I'm, this doesn't keep me up at night is precisely what you said earlier, which is there is no hegemon, and so no country in the long run can afford to fall behind. So new techniques are going to be proposed, and either you you adopt them, or else you're going to fall behind. And so, and more of if you don't do it, somebody else will do it, you know? So if you, if the European Union, which, and there are still 
within, you know, are opposed to genetically modified organisms. They have been developed somewhere else. They've developed here in the United States, or, you know, if the United States is going to ban them, they're going to move God knows where, off, offshore somewhere. But somebody's going to do it because the world is too decentralized and too co uncoordinated to suppress innovation. And if the innovation works, eventually, you know, it will become inevitable. So I think that's, that kind of progress is built in, into the system. And uh, as long as the world is divided into, you know, um, many countries or, or, or blocks of countries, if you want, that are competing with each other, I think progress is almost assured. Um, that's it. The one thing, of course, that, that, that everybody worries about is what's going to happen to freedom of thought. So, you know, you, you need a certain kind of environment in which there is a high rate of tolerance for nonconformists. Uh, one of the things I teach my students is the great paradox of Soviet science. Because in some ways, you would have expected the Soviet Union to be hugely successful scientifically because they don't have all the problems of appropriability of knowledge that the West has, you know, and all these sort of reasons economists point out why the market for ideas really under underproduces. But in the Soviet Union, people say, well, the government can do it so they can subsidize as much research as they want. And in some areas, that was true. I mean, they, they were the first one to send a satellite into space. And I still, I'm old enough to remember Sputnik. And, uh, but, you know, they did, lots of, they, they did develop certain things. And yet, as a source of scientific and technological progress, the Soviet Union was a dud. And, uh, and most people believe that that was contributed mightily to the fall of the system. And the reason, I think, is is because you need a society where nonconformism is tolerated. And nonconformism is indivisible. You know, you can't have a world in which people can say, oh, I disagree with this physics theory. But of course, you know, what Chairman Chi is saying is absolutely sacrosanct. I mean, you can't have that. You need critical minds have to be critical minds. And uh, I am worried that the world is moving more and more toward a, you know, an, an increased suppression of nonconformism. And um, I don't know what governs that, to tell you the truth. I mean, it's very hard to know. I don't understand why in many European countries we now have autocratic governments that systematically suppress the opposition. Now, you know, I, I don't think what happens in, in Hungary or in, 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 in Poland or even in Russia is going to affect overall development in the continent because as long as, you know, Germany and England and, you know, and the Netherlands and Denmark tolerate conformism, it doesn't matter. But these are large chunks of the world. And of course, the biggest player in, in all scientific and technological progress is the United States. And um, I see in the past decade or decades a growing lack of tolerance in the United States for nonconformists. I mean, the, the so-called cancel culture, which everybody's been talking about the last few weeks, uh, is just a, you know, a little manifestation of that. But it's been, it's been around there for, for a while. You know, now, I don't think it will catch on, but it is a source of concern to me, yes. Uh, apart from that, I think we're, we're you know, as far as ide new ideas are concerned, we're doing okay.
but that is a source of concern. You don't want to be in a world in which you know there's some kind of uh, uh, stigma attached with thinking outside the box. And remember one thing: people think out of the box. Ninety-nine out of a hundred are crackpots who will end up on the dustbin of history. There's one who's going to end up like Spinoza, but we don't know which one. So you have to tolerate all 100 to, 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 to get your Galileo or your Copernicus or your Einstein. That's what's happening, you know. I mean, science and technology are full of bad ideas. And the system sort of filters these out. But since we don't know ex ante which ideas are going to be bad and which ideas are good, you have to tolerate everybody who's making yes. crazy claims. Yes. It's, that strikes me as a very important point that you made about... <laughs> It could be one person out of a hundred. Because another thing which I learned from you is that technological and scientific progress is really carried through or carried forward by a very small percentage of people, maybe two or three people. Now, here's why I think it's interesting and, and why it's important. Uh, there's a, a very good psychology professor at, uh, in Australia called William von Hippel. In a recent book called The Human Leap, uh, I think it's The Human Leap, uh, The Social Leap, he talks about how eccentricity and original thinking is very often uh, wedded to eccentric behavior and also disagreeable behavior. So that many people who have the, um, shall we say, the cojones to say no, to 99% of humanity, I want to take this particular area of study in a completely different direction, in other words, to hell with all of you, are also people who are highly eccentric and very often highly disagreeable. Yes. So, so I think that political correctness can work its negative magic in two different ways. One is to shut people from speaking out, but the other one is that it may weed out of the of the employment pool a lot of people whose quirky personalities uh, do not uh, necessarily fit the majority. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I, 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 I would agree with that. And I think the degree to which society tolerates some people is a main determinant of how successful it is in creating new ideas. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that all people who come up with major innovations are necessarily disagreeable. I, mean, I can think of some people who are uh, who fit that description. Isaac Newton more than anybody else. He was a guy was a total jerk, <laughs> but he was brilliant. Uh, and, but uh, I don't know if this is too. This I'm, not, is too I'm not implying, obviously, that there is a hundred percent. No, 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 of course. Not. And I think you're you're absolutely right. Even the people who were not disagreeable, they were still eccentric in some way, uh, typically. And so no, I think that, 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 that that's absolutely true. And I think that's why uh, uh, it is so important for society to, you know, to stress these issues of free speech, of tolerance, of, you know, if you think, if you, somebody says something that you strongly disagree with, and that's <laughs> most of what I read in the paper, you know, say, oh, well, you know, 
forget it. Yeah, but but let them speak. I mean, shutting people up or even, you know, taking any kind of sanction against them uh, uh, seems to me seems to me totally counterproductive because neither I nor anybody else knows, you know, that whether some crazy idea that I think is completely crackpotty uh, uh, may not eventually lead to something really great. I mean, that's ju that's just the way uh, uh, human culture evolves. So, uh, that, yeah, that, that is a source that is a source of concern and uh, conformist societies and, you know, and certainly imperial China was sort of the, the ultimate example of that because they developed uh, this, you know, fiendishly efficient tool to create a conformist society, which is the imperial examination system. And everybody who wanted to get ahead of the world in China had to take the examinations. And the material for the examination was very well defined. You know, there were the, 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 the four books and the five classics, or was it the other way around? And everybody had to study those. And you just sat there and you learned them by heart. That's and that was the bottom. That's what you had to know. And then you took an exam, and the exam tested you on how well you had had absorbed this material. And so basically, every generation knew what every generation before it knew, and very few people deviated. And those who deviated, uh, you know, often found themselves in, in in the claws of what they call the literary inquisition. Uh, the same was true for you know in slightly different forms for the Jew for a Jewish society. So this is seems to be quite quite common. And you know one of the challenging challenges is to sort of try to see why and how do societies become more tolerant of of other people's ideas and basically you know take a live and let live kind of attitude because that I think is 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 a cultural prerequisite. To successful creativity. Yes. So, in the last uh, ten minutes, I want to turn to last two questions and really to take it away from ideas in general to ideas and COVID. So let's uh, let's uh, look at uh, COVID and human response to it. Um, and would you compare it with with past historical instances of pandemics? Um, you know. What do we have to combat a pandemic that our ancestors didn't? Um, in in what in what different ways are we um, are we ahead of the game? And I know it's an easy question to an economic historian such as yourself. Yeah, it is. It but, is easy. Yeah, but, I, but I think that when people are so pessimistic around the country, they need to know uh, they need to see some silver lining. So over to you. Well, the silver lining, of course, is that. Um, if this pandemic had hit us even a hundred years ago, as it did in some places, which is the Spanish flu, I mean, it would have been a real disaster because, you know, people, you know, when the Spanish flu hit in 1918, you know, medicine had advanced a bit in the previous century, but they had no clue what it was. You know, the, I, the, the very concept of that this was caused by a virus wasn't actually proven until 1933, 15 years later. I mean, people had no idea what it was. When COVID hit, you know, a month after it first hit, we had sequenced DNA. We knew exactly 
then it was a there was asymptomatic transmission, which is a, you know which is difficult. I mean, asymptomatic transmission is a bitch. That's what's doing all the trouble. If it if we didn't have that, we'd be fine. Uh, so this is a particularly nasty virus, uh, but we know what it is, and we you got scores and scores and scores of brilliant teams all over the world in China and Australia and England and the US everywhere Russia everywhere. People trying to, in competition, which is exactly the way you want it, trying to figure out a bunch of things about this virus. Uh, a, how to test quickly, cheaply, and effectively. B, if we can cure the symptoms. And three, of course, the you know the, the ultimate holy grail, the vaccine. Now, it's going to be hard. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that I think is, is, is quite clear from the history of technology is that what often counts is what we call focusing devices. People, you know, when 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 the world is faced or some subset of the world is faced is a well-defined, clear-cut problem, they're going to use their best minds to crack it. And, you know, and, and, the, and, 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 the speed at which they crack it is a function of the difficulty of the problem compared to the intellectual abilities of the people uh, solving them. So, you know, smallpox was something people in the 18th century were obsessed by. They were scared of smallpox, of, you know, for very good reasons. Um, and they were trying this and they were trying that. And, you know, you can search, there's a whole literature now, obviously only read by historians of science, that de deals with this. Uh, and, you know, and at some point, you know, in this particular case, it was kind of a lucky stroke. They hit upon the vaccination process in, in 1796 and bingo, you know, it's done. Um, the same happened, you know, with polio in the 50s. You know, we, and so, you know, people, you know, you had a whole bunch of, 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 of um, people worried about this. And, uh, you know, and two guys, you know, Salk and Sabin, eventually cracked the problem and, you know, they become celebrities. Uh, I can give you more and more examples. It's not just in medicine. It's, it's, it's all over the place, you know, uh, uh, how to fix nitrogen from the, from the atmosphere, uh, how to measure longitude at sea. I mean, these are well-defined problems. Not all technological pro progress comes in, in, in that package. Some of it, basically, people come up with a solution in search of a problem, right? So like, oh, we've got this nice thing here. What can we do with it? You know, x-rays, lasers, things like that. But in, in some cases, the problem is well understood, well defined, and you put the best minds on it. Now, with COVID, I think we today have the tools that even 15 years ago, let alone a century ago, People would have dreamed of it. It's not just sequencing DNA. You know, it's molecular immunology at an absolutely astonishing uh, level of detail, coupled to extraordinarily powerful computers that allow you to simulate and uh, um, uh, 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 equations that you couldn't so ever solve, and process vast amounts of data. And so, as far as I'm concerned, it's just a matter of time. I mean, this virus has vulnerabilities. We haven't fully found them yet, but it's impossible that we will not find them. Once we have found the vulnerabilities, we will exploit them. I think, you know, what the, 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 the sort of smart money is betting that within a year we will have not one, but three vaccines. They need none, none of which may be perfect. 
that's the problem, of course. But but we will be making vast progress. Now you compare that with the black test, which is sort of the, the which is the easy answer. And the black test had people in 1348. They didn't have a clue. This was the wrath of God. This was the doing of the Jews. This was you know whatever. And uh, you know they the black desk you know, continued to to ravage Europe for centuries, and nobody had the foggiest idea what caused it, what transmitted it. They did have some kind of intuitive notion that it was contagious, and so they did come up with this notion of a quarantine and putting a cordon sanitaire around cities where it broke out. That helped a little bit, but 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 not quite enough. Uh, but you know we we have you know a level of knowledge of you know cellular and molecular microbiology immunology virology and so on and so forth that nobody had had before and so i think it's just a matter of time until we crack it the reason this is an economic and social problem in my view and this is not going to make me very popular but we talked about people being eccentric and talking the reason is is because we have been spoiled we have been incredibly spoiled. The last, you know, even a century ago, you know, the probability was that if you were to die, you were going to die of infectious disease. Infectious disease killed people left, right, and center because there was nothing you could do about it. You know, I mean, you could try to, to prevent it, but once you got pneumonia or polio or something like that, you know, there was nothing doctors could do for you. That's, of course, all changed. And by now, if you look at the cause of death, even with COVID, but certainly before COVID, you know, infectious disease is like sixth on the list of causes of death. I mean, it's heart disease, it's cancer, it's circular disease, it's, you know, you know, homicide. I mean, we don't die of infectious disease. We'll become very complacent about it. And yeah, well, yeah, I'll take my flu shots, you know, but yeah, it wasn't on anybody's mind. And, um, and so this is this is very disturbing to us because we had sort of thought that this was a matter of the past, and look at it now. Nature is throwing this thing at us. And oh, where did that come from? Who knew? You know that this that this could even be a problem. Well, if you lived in Africa, you might have still been been worried about infectious disease, but in the United States or in the Western world, pff, nobody died of infectious disease anymore. Now this thing is hitting us. So people are really getting to be quite neurotic about it. Now, to put things <laughs> a little bit in perspective, okay? So, the number of people who die in the United States every year is about two and three quarters of a million. They, you know, that's just normal mortality. Um, you know, the mortality is like, you know, 0.8 of 1%. You multiply that by 335 million people, that's what you get. And so, you look at the total number of people who have died of COVID, you know, it's it's just, you know, it's, it's a small fraction of people would have died anyway. Yet we have paralyzed our economy for that. And, you know, maybe maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe we value the people who have died and wouldn't have otherwise died, you know, I don't know how many exactly that are, it could be 130, 150,000 people. We put enormous value on their lives. But... Clearly, if this had happened in 1860, people would have shrugged it off. It says, oh, well, it's just normal, you know. This is, this is what happens, this is what, you know. This is. 
But for us, this is no longer normal. We have become very complacent about uh, about infectious disease. And that may have been a misjudgment, you know, maybe nature has some surprises for us. I mean, it's so, you know, and it does every every once in a while. I mean, uh, I'm old enough to remember the, the breaking out of HIV in the 1980s. That was pretty bad. Now, you know, HIV was confined to a certain certain subsets of the population. And if, you know, you didn't belong to these subsets, uh, the likelihood of getting it was, was, was very low. But it was, you know, it was a serious concern. Uh, then, you know, Ebola came around and, um, you know, every once in a while nature throws something like that at, at, at us. And my view is it will continue to do so because, uh, you know, these microorganisms evolve. Maybe they jump from 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 animals to us, but they, they also they do involve particularly viruses involve involve quite quite rapidly, and they'll change and you know that and they're evolving in a direction that's that's meant to hurt us because that's what you know Darwinian, <laughs> Darwinian theory uh, predicts. So you have this incredible you know race between evolution and knowledge. But knowledge is growing faster than evolution. And if I had to bet, I would bet on knowledge. Now, it's never going to be a complete victory. You know, there will all nature will always come up with something new. But every time uh, it does so, we will be better at beating it. Because we're learning a lot from the COVID thing that will be useful in not in, for COVID, but for the next epidemic, which may be a totally different kind of thing. Maybe Ebola, maybe it will be some mutation of God knows what, you know. Maybe somebody will unleash smallpox. I mean, I, I, I hope not, but it, that could happen. It's still, you know, still labs that have it. Um, there could be some bacterial infection. This is a viral infection. This could be bacterial infection. I mean, who knows what still could, could happen. But we learn so much from the war against COVID that that knowledge will then be able help us to adapt to the next pandemic. And so we'll never be 100% in the clear, but each time we're doing better. And, and, knowledge is, and knowledge is cumulative and it is very difficult to wipe out uh, all of knowledge, right? Exactly, it's exactly. Difficult. It's cumulative, it's stored in, you know, in, in place. So even if, you know, if you don't have it, you can find it because our search engines have become so more powerful. You don't have to go to a library and spend, you know, three years looking for old books. You don't push a button and it pops up on your screen. Uh, that too is an incredible, I mean, I could talk about that for, for, for hours because I've written about this. This is actually enormously important, what you just said, because not only that it's cumulative, it has become more accessible. I mean, it's not enough that the knowledge exists somewhere, but what you need is you need to be able to A, know that it's there, B, find it, and then get somebody to translate it for you if you don't, if you, you know, if you don't speak the language. All of those things have become incredibly easy today with the internet. And so, uh, so that, yeah, that, 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 made, that makes me very optimistic about, about this in the long run. Now, you know, this is going to be really difficult for the next year or two, maybe even a bit longer. I don't know. I mean, that all depends. But this is not going to be the Black Death, and it is not going to be smallpox, and it's not even going to be the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu did kill 50 million people on, on, uh, around the globe. I mean, the Spanish flu was a big deal. But I'm reminding everybody 
that two or three years after the Spanish flu was over, we went into the roaring 20s and everybody was busy buying radios and, 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 uh, and, and automobiles and, 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 you know, the whole Spanish flu was forgotten really quickly. Uh, and so my sense is that you know, within a few years, much as this is at the moment difficult and it's difficult for everybody, uh, and this is a temporary thing. This is this is going to pass, and once it's passed, you know, within a, you know the fundamentals of the economy haven't changed. Yes, a lot of restaurants may go out of business, but the chefs that were cooking for them, if they are still around, they will open a new restaurant. You know, maybe American Airlines will go out of business. I I hope not, but it could happen. But then if they go out of business, somebody else will open. Uh, a new airline. I mean, this is, I mean, it's like, all, like almost like a forest fire, right? You think of this, this is a forest fire. Once, the, you know, you go and you, for the first day you come out and say, oh my God, all the trees are gone. You come back a year or two later and you realize things are sprouting up and within, you know, a fairly short time you have another forest. It may be, in fact, better than the previous forest. I mean, one of the things that we are, are learning now, and I think this is actually quite important, is... Um, the, and I've been talking about this for a while, is, is that telecommuting or, you know, work from home has become much more feasible now. I mean, you can sort of see that that's not just good for the world of COVID. That's good for lots of other things, like including air pollution, you know, the cost of commuting. Uh, uh, I mean, multitasking. Doing, doing you, 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 name, you name it. Well, if we, yeah, I mean... Now, not everybody can do it. I fully understand that. You know, not everybody is a, is a college professor or, you know, but, but A, that's to some extent the function of the technology. But it's totally clear that if you need to go to the dentist, you know, it's still not going to be very helpful that you, that you just, you know, telemedicine may not work for, for a dentist. But it will work for more and more things. And that actually may create a work environment that is far more user-friendly. So to close things up a bit, um, you are. It wouldn't be right to summarize that you are optimistic about us, about us finding uh, a cure to COVID. You are optimistic about the future of humanity and its economic growth, so long as we continue to pursue new knowledge without having uh, free thought and free speech uh, being restricted by uh, anything from dictatorships to political correctness. So knowledge is key. And even if it is created by some very eccentric and perhaps even disagreeable individuals, we should embrace them and let them flourish. I think that's absolutely true. And in that regard, I think the market for ideas is like any other market. Okay, What you want is easy and cheap entry, easy and cheap exit, and lots and lots of competition. The last thing you want in the in a, in a market for ideas is a monopolist like Comrade Stalin or like the you know the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages or you know uh, you, you, anything in between. I mean, what you really want is the market for ideas is supposed to be a mess. It's not an efficient market in the sense it produces a lot, of, as I said earlier, it produces a lot of garbage. It produces a lot of bogus ideas. But that's why it's a market, you know? If the ideas are bogus, eventually 
one hopes they will be weeded out. That doesn't happen quite as as as, as fast and as often as, as one would hope to, but that's there's very little you can do about that. But it's an evolutionary process, and evolution throws up a lot of dubs. But as I said earlier, in the end, uh, it works. Uh, I fear that institution. I mean, I'm much more of a technological optimist than I'm an institutional optimist. Uh, I think the uh, there is reason to be concerned about uh, about the political course of of maybe I, maybe I'll. I'll tell you this little anecdote. So one of my great friends, my, my great professional friends, was the late Douglas North, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1993. And I, 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 we were quite close. And one day, we were, Doug and I were drinking beer on his, in his summer home in Michigan. And Doug said, you know, Joel, here's something interesting. We, in economic history, we talk about technological progress, but we talk about institutional change. And that is significant because knowledge, as you said earlier, is cumulative, right? So it does move ahead because we know what previous generations knew. Institutions get better, they get worse. There is nothing in history that indicates that there is a trend toward better and better institutions. There have been times when they absolutely got better. But you, you look at, at, at the 1920s and 1930s, that was not the case. Um, and then after World War II, things got better, and maybe the last 20 years have not been so great. Interesting, and the uh, Aristotelian observation. Now, you, you were talking about how um, the wisdom of the ancients yes. uh, you know, is very often wrong. But I think that Aristotle was onto something when he said that human society can basically function along three different dimensions. It's either a democracy, it's oligarchy, or it's a dictatorship. And it seems to me that we keep on um, sort of like a pendulum going from one to the other, but we never get out from that three-prong uh, view of institutions. Am I right or wrong on that? Yeah, I think there's, there, there's, probably, you know, there, there's, there's some truth to that. Also, I would say there's lots of intermediate, intermediate cases. And he's never, he living at the time when he did, he could never quite envisage what we invented in the 20th century, which is totalitarianism, which of course couldn't exist in, in, in those days. But, um, but I think you're absolutely right. And I think we, we don't quite fully realize until the last 20 years uh, that the institutions we have, which is a you know open liberal democracy, a civil society, you know, rule of law, all those things are far, far more fragile than we've ever seen. We sort of think this is the natural thing, you know, once communism fell apart, you know, it was the end of history. We're all going to be like, you know, liberal democracies. And that's not happening. Liberal democracies are turning away from liberal democracy. Um, some countries faster, some countries slower. But I see, I can, you and, you and I, we both know where it's happening. And, and how fast it's happening. And, um, you know, you look at places like Brazil or you look at places, for China, for that matter. I mean, that I find really scary. Now, a scary scenario, and maybe I'll, I'll end up on a minor note, a scary scenario is a world in which technology gets better and better and institutions don't. And the gap between the two gets bigger and bigger. And what you are going to have is, you know, you know, a, a humanity with incredible capabilities, but the bad judgment of using them. And that could be a scary scenario. 
and we see some of that happening you know little little things of you know um you know social control and 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 um you know suppression of of uh, dissent uh, that's suppressed by technological means you know you look at you know what's happening in china especially but it's, it's happening in, in lots of countries it's, and, and it could happen here so i worry about that and so yeah i mean the last 20 years have been hard for an optimist Professor Melkir, thank you very much for giving us an hour of your time. This has been absolutely terrific. Um, thank you. It was my pleasure.